What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Stories Jay and I are looking at this week include J.P. Morgan paying $920 million fine for spoofing. We ask what is an efficient patent infringement and why it is certainly unethical. Of donut holes and cyber attacks, Jonathan Marks explores in Board and Fraud. What is effective discipline? Jeff Kaplan takes a look at that question. Is the SEC moving to increase penalties in light of lieu? Two lawyers look at that on the New York University Compliance and Enforcement blog. Of mobile devices and internal investigations, David Carnes and CCI. What is a grand jury subpoena? Sarah Croft explains. The Everything Compliance Kang takes a deep dive into the Herbalife FCPA resolution. All this and more on This Week in FCPA, the I Beat COVID edition. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 225 for the week ending, October 9, 2020, the I Beat COVID edition. So, Jay, you and I have not had the opportunity to beat COVID as Trump somewhat uh, feliciously announces he's COVID-free. And, of course, the non-cheating version of the Houston Astros prepare to return to the American League Championship Series. Some of the top stories uh, that have caught our eye are up. So you want to take it away? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll kick it off to you, but in our COVID-free virtual universe, uh, the first thing that you're going to talk about is J.P. Morgan. So uh, J.P. Morgan had a $920 million fine. That's uh, almost the B word, not quite. Um, it was around the uh, trading scam called spoofing. And I won't really go into what spoofing is. It's a pretty technical uh, trading, but it's gone on a long time. It's been illegal before. It's illegal now, and it'll be illegal in the future. Nevertheless, um, the interesting thing I thought from the compliance perspective was the detail that the government laid out in the settlement documents, uh, the CFTC and the Securities and Exchange Commission, about uh, what J.P. Morgan's compliance program, what their remedy was for the compliance failures. Now, they do have a three-year DPA, no monitor, but um, so uh, the Compliance program expanded significantly with $335 million spent on compliance personnel and costs, increased budgets for internal audit by $100 million, increasing internal audits headcount by 400 expanding business conduct training, uh, issuing compliance bulletins to staff at regular intervals, expanding the bank's surveillance of employee communications, uh, putting in a web-based supervisory portal, which lets managers review the risk profile of their employees, adding business conduct and commitment to compliance as factors in employee compensations decisions and implementing a program of independent quality assurance testing 
for compliance alerts. Uh, and they received a 25% discount off the low end of the uh, sentencing guidelines, excuse me, a 12.5% discount. So what uh, the thing that I would really like to communicate to the compliance professional, Jay, is that if you find yourself in an FCPA or other investigation, uh, remediate. Remediate quickly, remediate efficiently, remediate in communication with the Department of Justice so they know what you're doing, and you'll be rewarded even if the conduct is uh, obviously uh, – as you can tell by the fine and penalty, very bad, and it's close to that B word. But uh, the Department of Justice, to me, is is really communicating uh, what you can expect if you cooperate, if you remediate, and if you work with the government uh, after they lay a subpoena on you or you self-disclose. So um, next up, one of our favorite contributors here. Uh, this comes to us from Jonathan Rush from his Dipping Through Geometries blog. And he's talking about what is efficient patent infringement. Uh, A federal court has awarded Centripetal Networks $1.9 billion, with the B, Tom, in a patent infringement trial against Cisco Networks. In recent years, a number of companies have embraced in principle and in practice the concept of efficient infringement of other companies' patents. When a company deliberately chooses to infringe a patent given that it is cheaper to license that patent, because of various legal and regulatory challenges over the past decades, a company economically gains from deliberately infringing patents and pays less in either legal fees or in-court ordered damages than it would have paid if it licensed and negotiated with the patent owner. A recent federal court decision in a highly publicized patent trial may prompt companies to rethink whether efficient infringement is necessarily less costly in licensing. On October 5th, the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia, after a 22-day bench trial, found not only that Cisco Systems had infringed four patents that the cybersecurity solutions provider Centripetal Networks asserted, but that the case was an egregious case of willful misconduct. In support of that conclusion, the district court made numerous findings and conclusions, including that four of the patents that Centripetal asserted were valid and directly infringed. Centripetal and Cisco were direct competitors with regard to infringing software as well as firewalls. Enhanced damages were warranted by the evidence given Cisco's willful infringement, and Cisco had pre-suit knowledge of Centripetal's asserted patents. Under the patent damages provisions of the relevant patent statute, the court is authorized to increase the damages up to three times the amount found or assessed, and the relief due to Centripetal included the following elements. Actual damages of $755 million, pre-judgment interest of $13.7 million, and the district court directed a total award of $1,903,000,000. Finally, there, in terms of the running royalty, the district court imposed a running royalty of 10% on the apportioned sales of the accused products and their successors that would continue for a three-year period. Cisco, of course, has stated that it will appeal the decision Uh, The Fourth Circuit could reach a different conclusion regarding 
computation of damages in running royalty, but it appears less likely, however, that the Fourth Circuit would reverse the district court's ruling. In any event, this decision should serve notice that patent infringements can sometimes be highly inefficient for willful infringers. Whether or not it indicates that the pendulum is beginning to swing, however slowly, in favor of smaller patent holders confronted with infringement by larger competitors such as Cisco. Jake, can I just add that the reason I put this and wanted to talk about this case uh, in this week's episode is uh, this is apparently a trend of companies deciding to uh, consciously deciding to violate the law because they think they can make more by infringing on these patents than they would paying the patent royalties. And that is not the uh, byline of an ethical company. So if you're a chief compliance officer, you, you have got to raise objections to this. You may or may not be able to stop it. Hopefully this uh, extraordinarily robust judgment will do that, uh, and maybe that's what's needed. But uh, I was just incensed that these companies would make the conscious decision uh, to do this, and this was not a slip-up. This was not negligence. This was an intentional act by the company, and this is really something that demonstrates why compliance needs a, a seat at the table. So. Tom, next up, tell us, what is Jonathan Marks steamed about on his board and fraud blog? Uh, I'm sad to say, Jay, it's it's uh, from your part of the world, it's uh, Dunkin' Donuts. <gasps> and although it's not Dunkin' in Massachusetts, so it's not the mothership, it's a franchise in New York, but it's still about as bad as it gets in terms of a data breach where not only was the franchisor aware uh, that data was being compromised, but they had several breaches and they never notified authorities in New York. So basically, uh, Duncan uh, agreed to pay $650,000 as a penalty settlement for its failure to respond to credential stuffing attacks that compromised customer accounts between 2015 and uh, 2019. Also, I want to emphasize once again that this was a franchisor. Uh, it was not the, the mothership. But it really points to the need that you have to notify your state regulator. And if you don't, you're going to get spanked. And um, I don't know if you've ever worked in the franchise industry, um, but $650,000 for a franchisee is a big amount of money. So um, uh, have a cybersecurity policy uh, and follow that policy. Have a breach policy. Know who to notify. And... Um, Hopefully, you have not bought your Dunkin' Donuts and six sugar coffees, which are just fabulous, by the way, um, <laughs> at uh, th- this particular franchise in New York. Uh, you get the greatest buzz you can get legally, I think. Um, but uh, I did make me want to go out and have a Dunkin' Donut, Jay. Uh, it's making me think of a chocolate coconut. With mm. that, that's one, or if chocolate coconut's not available, I'll also recommend butternut as well. Wow. So, uh, next up, we've got an article coming to us from the October 2020 issue of the Compliance and Ethics Professional Magazine. This is from a, a friend of the podcast, Jeffrey Kaplan, who's part of the Kaplan Walker Law Firm. The recent evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which was updated in June by the Department of Justice, is the most significant and evolved set of compliance and ethics program standards ever issued by U.S. enforcement. The entire document should be read by compliance and ethics professionals, 
and it's worth paying particular attention to the section on discipline, given the difficulties that this area can impose on companies. The overarching expectation here is that the prosecutor will assess, quote, whether the company has clear disciplinary procedures in place, enforces them consistently across the organization, and ensures that the procedures are commensurate with violations, close quote. Communications about discipline are key to this and should convey to all employees that ethical conduct will not, that unethical conduct will not be tolerated and will bring swift consequences regardless of the position or title of the employee. By way of example, some companies have found that publicizing disciplinary actions internally, where appropriate and possible, can have a valuable deterrent effect. Also important to the DOJ is learning, quote, who participates in making disciplinary decisions, including the type of misconduct at issue, is the same process followed for each instance of misconduct, and if not, why, close quote. As well, prosecutors should determine if the actual reasons for discipline are communicated to employees. If not, why not? Are there legal or investigation-related reasons for restricting this information, or have pretextual reasons been provided to protect the company from whistleblowing or outside scrutiny? Another evaluation topic is consistent application. Has disciplinary actions and incentives been fairly and consistently applied across the organization? All these criteria are common sense, but in many companies, they are neither practiced nor preached, due in part to the desire to protect powerful people in a company for being held to account for their wrongdoing. So what can be done to mitigate the facts? Number one, incorporate key parts of the criteria into applicable policies. Two, do the same with the select areas of training. Three, make presentations on these issues to the audit committee. And four, include these issues in external program assessments. Um, I usually love reading Jeffrey's articles because they're very terse, they're very short and to the point, but they're jam-packed with information. So we recommend you check it out in the show notes. Jay, next up, uh, we had an article from the New York University Compliance and Enforcement blog, Robert Cohen and Stephanie Myrick authoring the piece. And it's uh, a little bit, the focus is not exactly in the FCPA world, but it's close enough that I thought we should talk about it. And it involves the Supreme Court decision in Lou versus Securities and Exchange Commission, which upheld the uh, SEC's authority to seek disgorgement in district court actions. It limited this to um, uh, five years uh, uh, as well. So, um, this is going to, or the effect has been to lessen the overall um, penalties that the SEC has been able to wring out of those who violate the Securities and Exchange Act, including the FCPA. And what intrigued me was Director of Enforcement Stephanie Akanian suggested in a recent speech that the SEC would compensate for potential limitations on disgorgement authority by seeking increased penalties. She said, quote, once again, we are dedicating resources to evaluating the impact of the Lew decision and how the questions the court left open will affect us going forward. As a result, you should expect to see some changes in the balance between penalties and disgorgement that we seek and recommend to the commission. Penalties may be higher in some cases where the statutory scheme permits us to do so. We will make our recommendations consistent with the court's decision, 
but we will also seek the relief necessary to achieve our mission of protecting investors and maintaining market integrity, end quote. That, uh, to me, is um, not a suggestion. That's a, a direct statement that the SEC uh, will uh, seek increased penalties. Now, I don't know. This is not directed specifically at the FCPA, so I can't say that uh, that for certain happened under the uh, any FCPA rulings. Uh, and, of course, you have the one pie concept with the Department of Justice. So that is in play as well. But a uh, pretty strong statement from the uh, Director of Enforcement that uh, the SEC will seek additional penalties to make up for monies that it can no longer uh, seek as disgorgement uh, based upon the Lou case. Great, Tom. Next up, uh, take a weekly visit to Corporate Compliance Insight website, and uh, we're going to look at internal investigations. An internal investigation can sometimes feel like high-stakes game of needle in a haystack. Current world challenges, um, excuse me, set the haystack on fire. Case points David Carnes addresses how organizations can plan to respond effectively while avoiding cost and risks. While most of today's law departments are highly proactive when it comes to e-discovery and have solid, well-defined workflows and tools for managing the process, internal investigations do not always inspire the same level of diligence and planning. It's surprising how many companies still lack formal processes for investigations and fail to consider appropriate technology for preservation, collection, and processing data. With the emergence of COVID-19, this has added a new wrinkle to investigations. Because nearly everyone is working remotely, more of the information that needs to be identified and collected is on mobile device. This is true whether the devices are corporate or employees-owned, and that means that the companies will need help uh, to collect MDM, which is mobile device management, and they need to use software or utilities to collect the necessary information. So what is MDM? Lawyers and risk managers who are involved in data discovery should be aware that MDM is very likely being deployed across your, your enterprise, and it is increasingly important forensic tool for discovery. Nearly every corporate ID department uses some form of MDM software to securely manage and monitor the use of smartphones, tablets, and laptops. In a bring-your-own-device world, MDM is an important security solution that helps IT ensure that equipment is configured and updated in a consistent, standardized, and scalable way. MDM is necessary for employees to access corporate mail on a device. It also gives companies the capacity to remotely wipe email from devices if necessary. From an investigative standpoint, MDM is not only an important centralized source of information about employers' use of applications like email, voice, and chat, but it also provides important information to document with precision when and how employees are using various devices from locations to access corporate information. Without the right tool, MDM data is extremely difficult to interpret. In the event of an internal investigation, Extracting and decoding data from devices equipped with MDM falls to IT, and it's a good bet that they use this good that they use a particularly good forensic tool for that purpose. Fortunately, at least some e-discovery tools can convert data into easy to comprehend sequentially organized chat-like conversations. So internal investigations do merit a thoughtful approach. 
The emerging relevance of MDM data to investigations is a key development, and it highlights the importance of understanding your organization's technology infrastructure. Don't be tempted to take shortcuts. Make sure the collection tools you use deploy official APIs from Dropbox, Microsoft, Google Docs, and other common repositories to ensure you get accurate data and are able to pull the most recent versions of any documents. Consolidate technology for accuracy and efficiency. Use an integrated SAAS e-discovery and data discovery platform that can manage data at every phase of the investigation. Have built-in artificial intelligent technologies like machine learning and predictive coding so you can run data-intensive searches. Include multilingual capabilities to help avoid cost association with translation or multilingual viewing. Provide easy access data. And finally, support hundreds of file types used in corporate environments. Standardize processes and workflows across the organization. If you treat internal investigations like any other legal matter that presents financial and reputational risks, you should establish and put into writing a formal procedure for conducting internal investigations that identify stakeholders' roles and outcomes. Among the benefits, formalizing your approach will force you to gain a better understanding of your information infrastructure and create awareness of the applications like MDM that are most likely to come into play the next time a matter for investigation arises. Okay, next up we have an article from, I think, one of the uh, great unsung uh, and underappreciated blogs, and that's the grand jury uh, subpoena, or rather um, grand jury target that Sarah Croft writes. And this week she wrote about uh, what happens if you get a grand jury subpoena. And I never really knew what precisely what a grand jury subpoena was and uh, what happens when you get one. So uh, it was a very useful. It's something that every uh, compliance officer needs to be aware of because you may be subpoenaed if uh, your company does not self-disclose and finds itself in an FCPA investigation. She explains uh, what a grand jury subpoena is, what a grand jury is, what a grand jury does, how a grand jury investigates possible crimes, what a subpoena asks for in terms of documents. She does caution you very strongly, do not ignore it, do not think it will go away, do not try to forget about it. You have to deal with it, and you have to deal with it promptly. Uh, She does uh, say you can tell other people about it and that you can challenge a subpoena. So a great review of something that, you know, tangentially uh, reaches uh, compliance practitioners uh, occasionally, but it's certainly something that's a great resource. And once again, uh, her blog, The Grand Jury Target, focusing on key issues in white-collar prosecutions is a great resource uh, as well. So we recently called together the Everything Compliance Gang to take a look at the recent Herbalife FCPA um, resolution, but we did something a little bit different this week. What did we do, Tom? So, Jay, uh, what I did was I um, cut out everyone's presentation and posted it each day. So that it was in bite sizes. Um, uh, there, there was somebody there. I, I don't know how they got in there, but um, they claimed to be Jay Rosen talking about monitors. It was not you. It was not Mr. <laughs> monitors. But other than that, it was uh, a great series. And uh, uh, Mike Volkoff uh, talked about what he would have done um, had he gotten a call from Herbalife. Uh, imposter Jay Rosen uh, talked about the lack of a monitorship, but more importantly, 
what lessons a compliance practitioner can take away from that. Matt Kelly looked at, uh, on Wednesday, the role of internal audit. Uh, Jonathan Marks looked at the role of gatekeepers on Thursday, and it concluded Friday with Jonathan Armstrong uh, looking at it from the U.K. perspective and actually having some analogous cases out of Scotland that uh, I don't know had uh, heard about. So it was uh, a great way, I think, for a bite-sized uh, di- digestion of the Everything Compliance Gang's take on uh, the Herbalife FCPA resolution on the compliance, excuse me, on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, which is sponsored this month by Affiliated Monitors. <clears throat> we took a look this week. Uh, we're looking this month at Business Ventures, but this week was really JV week. Uh, so on Monday, I took a look at dislinking illegal conduct from a JV to a parent, JV risks under the FCPA, uh, specific JV due diligence, what compliance terms and conditions you need in a JV agreement, and it concluded on Friday with auditing JV. So if you're in a joint venture, uh, really these five days or are for you. So uh, take a look at uh, and listen to those uh, five podcasts this week. So we're getting into the home stretch for 2020. And Tom, you and Matt Kelly have a webinar coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, first of all, in the... Uh, Bottom of the fifth, the Astros are up 6-4, so uh, just not, you know, I want to keep everybody abreast of uh, the non-cheating Astros, how they're doing. Although Carlos Correa did say you can kiss my, but uh, culture issues aside, um, yeah, uh, Compliance Line is putting on or sponsoring a webinar with... um, Hosted by, moderated by Matt Kelly, of which Ellen Hunt is guy in compliance. Coolest guy in compliance. Uh, Ellen Hunt and I, and one other, will uh, be the panelists. So it's uh, scheduled, I believe, for next week, next Tuesday, actually. I've got uh, agenda and registration information linked in. So if you want to find out about where this craziest year of our lives, Maybe going in the last two and a half months, uh, this really would be the webinar for you. I'm really looking forward to it as uh, anyone who's ever heard Ellen Hunt talk knows she's a CCO at uh, AARP and a great resource. Of course, anytime you can have be moderated by the coolest guy in compliance, you're going to look cool just by uh, being next to him, even if it's virtually. So, Tom, we are taping this. It is uh, Thursday afternoon, October 8th. Um, we are just coming from two, two and a half days of our wonderful conference called Converge 20. Uh, I know you moderated several of the uh, sessions and that you were involved in the planning. Do you have any takeaways from the euphoric feeling that we have just leaving Converge 20? Sure, Jay. Uh, I, I have seen the future of compliance conferences, and it occurred this week. Uh, Converge 20, obviously a virtual conference. Uh, really demonstrated that if you do it right, if you have the right tech uh, and your tech doesn't foul up, you can have an incredible conference experience. The panels were great, but that was about a third of why it was so powerful to me, Jay. The power was people like you. uh, When I was an attendee, not a moderator or a presenter, in the chat function, not only posing questions to the panelists, but raising comments, uh, raising points, and then having others comment back about our points and having an entire separate discussion thread going on with other engaged attendees. 
There were over 3,000 registrants, and I think at uh, the highest point, they had 2,200 uh, actually attending. That's If that's true, that's number one for any compliance conference, virtual or in person. Uh, there was uh, no cost at this conference, so you can't beat that price. And then, of course, for the lawyers amongst us, there was CLE available. For the non-lawyers, there are CEUs available. So you were able to get um, you know something tangible if you have to take back to your state regulator or uh, uh, state bar association for continuing legal education credits. But, Jay, it was about the engagement. It was about, uh, obviously, I saw a lot of people just happy to communicate with other compliance practitioners that they would see perhaps at one or two conferences annually, uh, you know, virtual hugs were given and received. And uh, you and I, you know, interacted with people uh, that we don't get to see this year, certainly as much as we'd like to. But the the engagement was just stunning. And uh, it's really, I think, going to be the future of compliance conferences because when you can have that kind of engagement, and the, the money you would spend otherwise is directed into your tech pap- platform and speakers. Uh, you can have a absolute first-rate experience as an attendee. And then as the conference provider, um, you can deliver a, a, a product that is uh, not only most unique, but, but the best. And Converge 20 was clearly, to my mind, the best compliance conference of 2020 um, Converge self-funded this, so that's obviously a different model from the pay model that are all the other conferences are. So the the question I would have, uh, I don't know, know if you and I would have the answer, but if a conference provider can develop an exhibitor hall or exhibitor room that allows people, uh, vendors, uh, who want to exhibit, who want to, to sponsor and exhibit a way to do so, do so effectively, uh, do so with highly engaged participants with numbers and full access to the database. That may be the next, uh, the next kind of iteration of compliance conferences because I don't think compliance conferences are going to be live again until 2022. Yeah, so really real interesting. One, one thing that I tried out that was very cool is they have this almost – uh, I wouldn't call it speed date, dating, but you get in and it says, if you'd like to network with someone, press a button. And I did. And I ended up being uh, connected to a gentleman from Pakistan who works for a telecom company, Vion. And we actually knew somebody in common in between us. So it was very magical to do that. And I think, uh, you know, uh, it's something that was unique. And again, as Tom said, the tech worked. The price was right, and now I have a friend at Vion in Pakistan, so I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, who's not only the compliance evangelist, but the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 225, for the week ending October 9th, 2020, the I Beat COVID edition. Uh, As I always close off, I hope that you and yours are safe and healthy. Tom and I appreciate you spending some of your weekend with us, and we look forward to talking with you next week. Take care and have a good one. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. 
If there are any topics you'd like Jay and I to take up, please let us know. Also, you can use the SpeakPipe app on the Compliance Podcast Network site. If you need to reach me, I'm at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Jay's at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week where Jay and I take up some of the week's top stories which caught our eye on This Week in FCPA, which is a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.